We continue with Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., the Harvard College. Part 2 Properly understood, our precedents have largely adhered to the 14th Amendment's demand for colorblind laws. That is why, for example, courts must subject all racial classifications to the strictest of scrutiny. And in case after case, we have employed strict scrutiny vigorously to reject various forms of racial discrimination as unconstitutional. The court today rightly upholds that tradition and acknowledges the consequences that have flowed from Gruder's contrary approach. Three aspects of today's decision warrant comment. First, to satisfy strict scrutiny, universities must be able to establish an actual link between racial discrimination and educational benefits. Second, those engaged in racial discrimination do not deserve deference with respect to their reasons for discriminating. Third, attempts to remedy past governmental discrimination must be closely tailored to address that particular past governmental discrimination. Section A. To satisfy strict scrutiny, universities must be able to establish a compelling reason to racially discriminate. Gruder recognized only one interest sufficiently compelling to justify race-conscious admissions programs, the educational benefits of a diverse student body. Expanding on this theme, Harvard and UNC have offered a grab bag of interests to justify their programs, spanning from training future leaders in the public and private sectors to enhancing appreciation, respect, and empathy with references to better educating their students through diversity in between. The court today finds that each of these interests are too vague and immeasurable to suffice, and I agree. Even in Gruder, the court failed to clearly define the educational benefits of a diverse student body. Thus, in the years since Gruder, I have sought to understand exactly how racial diversity yields educational benefits. With nearly 50 years to develop their arguments, neither Harvard nor UNC, two of the foremost research institutions in the world, nor any of their amici, can explain that critical link. Harvard, for example, offers a report finding that meaningful representation of racial minorities promotes several goals. Only one of those goals, producing new knowledge stemming from diverse outlooks, bears any possible relationship to educational benefits. Yet it, too, is extremely vague and offers no indication that, for example, student test scores increased as a result of Harvard's efforts toward racial diversity. More fundamentally, it is not clear how racial diversity, as opposed to other forms of diversity, uniquely and independently advances Harvard's goal. 
This is particularly true because Harvard blinds itself to other forms of applicant diversity, such as religion. It may be the case that exposure to different perspectives and thoughts can foster debate, sharpen young minds, and hone students' reasoning skills. But it is not clear how diversity with respect to race, qua race, furthers this goal. Two white students, one from rural Appalachia and one from a wealthy San Francisco suburb, may well have more diverse outlooks on this metric than two students from Manhattan's Upper East Side attending its most elite schools, one of whom is white and other of whom is black. If Harvard cannot even explain the link between racial diversity and education, then surely its interest in racial diversity cannot be compelling enough to overcome the constitutional limits on race consciousness. UNC fares no better. It asserts, for example, an interest in training students to live together in a diverse society. This may well be important to a university experience, but it is a social goal, not an educational one. And again, UNC offers no reason why seeking a diverse society would not be equally supported by admitting individuals with diverse perspectives and backgrounds rather than varying skin pigmentation. Nor have Amiki pointed to any concrete and quantifiable educational benefits of racial diversity. The United States focuses on alleged civic benefits, including increasing tolerance and decreasing racial prejudice. Yet when it comes to educational benefits, the government offers only one study purportedly showing that college diversity experiences are significantly and positively related to cognitive development and that interpersonal interactions with racial diversity are the most strongly related to cognitive development. Here again, the link is, at best, tenuous, unspecific, and stereotypical. Other amici assert that diversity generally fosters the even more nebulous values of creativity and innovation, particularly in graduates' future workplaces. Yet none of those assertions deals exclusively with racial diversity— as opposed to cultural or ideological diversity, and none of those amici demonstrate measurable or concrete benefits that have resulted from universities' race-conscious admissions programs. Of course, even if these universities had shown that racial diversity yielded any concrete or measurable benefits, they would still face a very high bar to show that their interest is compelling. To survive strict scrutiny, any such benefits would have to outweigh the tremendous harm inflicted by sorting individuals on the basis of race. As the court's opinions in these cases make clear, all racial stereotypes harm and demean individuals. That is why only those measures the state must take to provide a bulwark against anarchy or to prevent violence will constitute a pressing public necessity, 
sufficient to satisfy strict scrutiny today. For this reason, just as the alleged educational benefits of segregation were insufficient to justify racial discrimination in the 1950s, the alleged educational benefits of diversity cannot justify racial discrimination today. Section B. The court also correctly refuses to defer to the university's own assessments that the alleged benefits of race-conscious admissions programs are compelling. It instead demands that the interests universities view as compelling must be capable of being subjected to meaningful judicial review. In other words, a court must be able to measure the goals asserted and determine when they have been reached. The court's opinion today further insists that universities must be able to articulate a meaningful connection between the means they employ and the goals they pursue. Again, I agree. Universities' self-proclaimed righteousness does not afford them license to discriminate on the basis of race. In fact, it is error for a court to defer to the views of an alleged discriminator while assessing claims of racial discrimination. We would not offer such deference in any other context, in employment discrimination lawsuits under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, for example, courts require only a minimal prima facie showing by a complainant before shifting the burden onto the shoulders of the alleged discriminator employer. And Congress has passed numerous laws, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1875, under its authority to enforce the 14th Amendment, each designed to counter discrimination and each relying on courts to bring a skeptical eye to alleged discriminators. This judicial skepticism is vital. History has repeatedly shown that purportedly benign discrimination may be pernicious and discriminators may go to great lengths to hide and perpetuate their unlawful conduct. Take, for example, the university respondents here. Harvard's holistic admissions policy began in the 1920s when it was developed to exclude Jews. Based on de facto quotas that Harvard quietly implemented, the proportion of Jews in Harvard's freshman class declined from 28% as late as 1925 to just 12% by 1933. During this same period, Harvard played a prominent role in the eugenics movement. According to then-President Abbott Lawrence Lowell, Excluding Jews from Harvard would help maintain admissions opportunities for Gentiles and perpetuate the purity of the Brahmin race, New England's white Protestant upper crust. UNC also has a checkered history, dating back to its time as a segregated university. It admitted its first black undergraduate students in 1955 but only after being ordered to do so by a court, following a long legal battle in which UNC sought to keep its segregated status. Even then, UNC did not turn on a dime. 
The first three black students admitted as undergraduates enrolled at UNC, but ultimately earned their bachelor's degrees elsewhere. To the extent past is prologue, the university respondents' histories hardly recommend them as trustworthy arbiters of whether racial discrimination is necessary to achieve educational goals. Of course, none of this should matter in any event. Courts have an independent duty to interpret and uphold the Constitution that no university's claimed interest may override. The court today makes clear that in the future, universities wishing to discriminate based on race in admissions must articulate and justify a compelling and measurable state interest based on concrete evidence. Given the strictures set out by the court, I highly doubt any will be able to do so. Section C. In an effort to salvage their patently unconstitutional programs, the universities and their amici pivot to argue that the 14th Amendment permits the use of race to benefit only certain racial groups, rather than applicants writ large. Yet this is just the latest disguise for discrimination. The sudden narrative shift is not surprising, as it has long been apparent that diversity was merely the current rationale of convenience to support racially discriminatory admissions programs. Under our precedents, this new rationale is also lacking. To start, the case for affirmative action has emphasized a number of rationales over the years, including 1. Restitution to compensate those who have been victimized by past discrimination, 2. Fostering diversity. 3. Facilitating integration and the destruction of perceived racial castes. And 4. Countering long-standing and diffuse racial prejudice. Again, this court has only recognized one interest as compelling. The educational benefits of diversity embraced in Gruder. Yet as the universities define the diversity that they practice, it encompasses social and aesthetic goals far afield from the education-based interests discussed in Gruder. The dissents, too, attempt to stretch the diversity rationale, suggesting that it supports broad remedial interests. But language, particularly the language of controlling opinions of this court, is not so elastic. The court refuses to engage in this lexicographic drift, seeing these arguments for what they are, a remedial rationale in disguise. As the court points out, the interest for which respondents advocate has been presented to and rejected by this court many times before. In Regions of University of California v. Bakke, 1978, the University of California made clear its rationale for the quota system it had established. It wished to counteract effects of generations of pervasive discrimination against certain minority groups. But the court rejected this distinctly remedial rationale, with Justice Powell adopting in its place the familiar diversity interest 
that appeared later in Gruder. The court similarly did not adopt the broad remedial rationale in Gruder, and it rejects it again today. Newly and often minted theories cannot be said to be commanded by our precedents. Indeed, our precedents have repeatedly and soundly distinguished between programs designed to compensate victims of past governmental discrimination from so-called benign race-conscious measures, such as affirmative action. To enforce that distinction, our precedents explicitly require that any attempt to compensate victims of past governmental discrimination must be concrete and traceable to the de jure segregated system, which must have some discrete and continuing discriminatory effect that warrants a present remedy. Today's opinion for the court reaffirms the need for such a close remedial fit, hewing to the same line we have consistently drawn. Without such guardrails, the 14th Amendment would become self-defeating, promising a nation based on the equality ideal, but yielding a quota and caste-ridden society steeped in race-based discrimination. Even Gruder itself could not tolerate this outcome. It accordingly imposed a time limit for its race-based regime, observing that a core purpose of the 14th Amendment was to do away with all governmentally imposed discrimination based on race. The court today enforces those limits, and rightly so. As noted above, both Harvard and UNC have a history of racial discrimination, but neither have even attempted to explain how their current racially discriminatory programs are even remotely traceable to their past discriminatory conduct. Nor could they. The current race-conscious admissions programs take no account of ancestry and, at least for Harvard, likely have the effect of discriminating against some of the very same ethnic groups against which Harvard previously discriminated. All the while, Harvard and UNC ask us to blind ourselves to the burdens imposed on the millions of innocent applicants denied admission because of their membership in a currently disfavored race. The Constitution neither commands nor permits such a result, purchased at the price of immeasurable human suffering. The 14th Amendment recognizes that classifications based on race lead to ruinous consequences for individuals and the nation. Consequently, all racial classifications are inherently suspect and must be subjected to the searching inquiry conducted by the court. This opinion has been divided into multiple segments, and we've just come to the end of the third. But don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.